July 1, 1964. Dear Dad and Chris, all's well. Vicksburg remains fairly quiet as far as the white community is concerned, but we are really beginning to get things moving with the Negroes. The latent fear nurtured through the centuries and the new fears generated in part by the disappearance of the three men in Philadelphia form a mighty obstacle, but one which, with consistent work, can be cracked. Dad, the work you're doing for us with the PF newspapers, etc., sounds great. How about you, Chris? Don't worry, everything will turn out okay. I have a sense of accomplishment now that I've never had before. The kids I am working with are worthy of real admiration, and I have no vocabulary to express my respect for the staff and Mississippi who live with this closed society year after year. Love, Shell. Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. Before I get into the episode, I'd like to thank everyone who's listened and supported me in real life, on Facebook, and with your reviews. I mentioned last time that I needed to reconsider my posting schedule, but it's been so encouraging that you've continued to listen and share the podcast in the time since that post. They've made me feel like this was something worth continuing, and so I thank you. Please note that some of the descriptions in today's episode are disturbing. The N-word is also used throughout the primary sources and is bleeped out. Today, I'm talking about the Mississippi Summer Project, which started in June 1964. The organizers sought to bring national attention to the violent suppression of African Americans' civil rights in the Magnolia State. Later called Freedom Summer, the project had four major components. Freedom Schools, where volunteers taught black Mississippians reading, writing, science, and math, as well as history, including black history, and their rights as American citizens. There were community centers, known as Freedom Houses, where residents could study subjects such as art and dance. Freedom Summer volunteers would help black Mississippians register to vote. And in the later part of the summer, the activists collected signatures in an effort to seat a delegation at the Democratic National Convention, which would be held in August. The summer of 64 did not mark the beginning of civil rights work in Mississippi. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, had labored in rural Mississippi since 1961, and a SNCC memo describes some of that work and how it led to Freedom Summer. Memorandum on the SNCC Mississippi Summer Project In August of 1961, SNCC launched its first voter registration project in Amity, Pike, and Walfall counties of Mississippi. Many hardships were met and overcome in the difficult time that followed, and eventually SNCC workers were able to spread their activity to the Delta and then the entire state. By the fall of 1963, SNCC had expanded to all five of Mississippi's five congressional districts and had joined with CORE, SCLC, and the NAACP in forming a statewide organization called the Council of Federated Organizations, COFO. Voting leagues and civic groups from all over the state are now brought together to form the real base of COFO. In the two and a half years that SNCC has been working in Mississippi, there has been a growing recognition of the need to develop programs to supplement the voter registration work. It was realized that in order to prepare Mississippi for real democracy, not only literacy programs were needed, but also programs of social and political education. In addition, retaliation by county authorities forced SNCC to organize food and clothing drives for near-starving families. Suspension of commodity distribution and the desperate economic state of Mississippi's Negroes have led to expanded food and clothing drives and the establishment of three distribution centers. It is realized that much more comprehensive programs are now necessary to tackle the terrible poverty and deprivation to which the Negro communities are subject. 
The retaliation mentioned in the memo was in response to a voting drive in Greenwood, Mississippi, in the summer of 62. When mass arrests, drive-by shootings, and Molotov cocktails didn't stop blacks from trying to vote, county officials seized shipments of rice, flour, and dried milk that the federal government sent to help sharecroppers through the lean winter. Thousands were left, quote, naked, buck barefoot, and starving. One infant died. The rest of the SNCC memo compares the summer project to a Peace Corps operation. But instead of flying to a distant land, inhabited by speakers of another language, the mission land was the so-called Closed Society of Mississippi. Almost any effort at opening Mississippi, no matter how small, had been swiftly and violently defeated. Ole Miss history professor James Silver suffered the wrath of segregationists merely for coining the term Closed Society. The campus director for religious life was forced to leave the campus after he hosted a black journalist. In 1963, 28 Methodist ministers signed a statement in support of church integration. Half of them left the state within a year. Newspaper publisher Hazel Smith used her column called Through Hazel Eyes to decry the, quote, dark cloud over us dominating every facet of public and private life. She also wrote that, quote, almost every man and woman is afraid to try to do anything to promote goodwill and harmony of the races. Smith would become the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing, but she lost advertisers, was ostracized, and accused of having communist ties. Her husband lost her jo his job. Along with SNCC, the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, began planning the Freedom Project in the fall of 1963. COFO sponsored it. COFO was comprised of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or SCLC, and other groups. SNCC provided roughly 80% of the staff and funding for the project, and CORE contributed nearly all of the remaining 20%. Since local government officials had failed to protect the civil rights of black Mississippians, it was hoped that the summer project would force the federal government to intervene on their behalf. Freedom Summer organizers believed that the involvement of northern, mostly white volunteers would attract national attention to the political, social, and economic conditions for African Americans in Mississippi. America hadn't seemed to care that black Mississippians were arrested, beaten, and killed for trying to vote. Such treatment of white Ivy League students from upper-middle-class families, however, would surely provoke outrage. This approach was not initially welcomed by all COFO members. After laboring for years on the front lines, with the bruises, broken bones, and bullet wounds to show for it, some black activists feared that the white college students would swoop in and get the, quote, plaudits and headlines or that they might take over and disregard the work that had already been done. Mississippian Hollis Watkins had been a SNCC since 1961, when at the age of 19 he joined the Freedom Rides, a direct action campaign that challenged segregated transportation. In his words, quote, We had worked so hard trying to get local people to take initiative for their own movement. That process was beginning to take place. And I felt that bringing a large number down from the north would snatch the rug right from under the people in the local communities." End quote. Skeptics also included Stokely Carmichael, who considered the idea either, quote, an act of madness or a daring stroke of genius. MacArthur Cotton argued that blacks had little to gain but much to lose if whites came to Mississippi for the summer, caused a disturbance, and then went back home. Cotton had also been a freedom, freedom writer and survived being hung by his thumbs in the notorious Parchment Farm prison. The NAACP warned against a white backlash that would give the presidential election to Republican nominee Barry Goldwater. But Fannie Lou Hamer argued, quote, if we're going to break down the barriers of segregation, we can't segregate ourselves, end quote. And Bob Moses who would become the Summer Project director, refused to be part of anything, quote, all black. 
Civil rights needed to be a question, quote, of rational people against irrational people, end quote, and not of skin color. Moses also said, quote, I also thought that the one thing we can do for the country that no one else could do is be above the race issue, end quote. Early in 1964, the scales tipped in favor of inviting Northern volunteers after Lewis Allen was shot dead in his driveway. Allen had witnessed the shooting death of NAACP leader and SNCC supporter Herbert Lee by state legislator Eugene Hurst. Under coercion, Allen initially corroborated Hurst's claim that the shooting had been in self-defense. But Allen later told federal investigators what really happened, that Lee was empty-handed when Hearst shot him in broad daylight. After two years of harassment, violence, and his business being boycotted, Lewis Allen suffered the same fate as his friend Herbert Lee. And so, undecided COFO leaders were now on board with the summer project. In February, SNCC began circulating an eight-page fundraising brochure and took out a full-page ad in the New York Times. The National Council of Churches held a planning event in New York in March and agreed to bankroll two training sessions. Throughout the spring, prospective volunteers were invited to apply, and local black families were asked to host and support these volunteers. In interviews, organizers weeded out applicants who seemed determined to carve their own niches rather than cooperate with the local activists. Glory seekers were not welcome. Those who showed signs of a John Brown complex were also not invited. Those who did make the cut were told, quote, don't come to Mississippi this summer to save the Mississippi Negro. Only come if you understand, really understand, that his freedom and yours are one. Appeals were sent for cash donations, as well as typewriters, mimeograph machines, blackboards, bulletin boards, and office supplies. And they came in from all over the country. Writer James Baldwin sent a personal appeal, comedian Dick Gregory gave benefit performances, and the SNCC Freedom Singers raised $5,000 per week with their traveling show. Bob Moses shared his vision on college campuses, including Stanford University, where he spoke in April. He spoke about Herbert Lee, Lewis Allen, and other victims of Mississippi terror. Well, now, that phase in there was marked by several types of incidents, and probably for us and for the workers, and still for the workers, the acts of what we call symbolic terror figure most sharply in coloring all of the work, because for us, Mississippi deals in symbolic acts of terror, of killing. You can roll off the names. In 1956, Mr. Lee and Belzoni, who was shot and killed. The year after, in that same city, it was Gus Quartz who was shot and run out of the city. 1960, it was a man on Brookhaven's courthouse lawn who was shot and killed. 1961, it was Herbert Lee in Amity County who was shot and killed. In 1963, it was Medgar Evers in Jackson who was shot and killed. In 1964, it was Lewis Allen and three people in Wilkinson County and just recently another person in Wilkinson County, all shot and killed. Always the same type of people were found. They'd been shot by white people. Only in Medgar Evers' case was an indictment brought and an actual trial. Bob Moses also formed a group called Friends of Freedom in Mississippi. They wrote letters to President Lyndon Johnson imploring the federal government to send protection for the volunteers. Parents in Philadelphia and Boston also contacted Washington, pleading for federal protection. White Mississippi made its own preparations. Rumors spread that 30,000 invaders were on their way and Negro gangs were forming to rape white women. Gun sales soared and police departments stockpiled tear gas, riot guns, and cattle prods. The Jackson, Mississippi police acquired a six-ton armored vehicle with room for 12 officers. Klan posters listed 20 reasons for joining. The Klan Imperial Wizard warned, quote, This summer, within a very few days, the enemy will launch his final push for victory here in Mississippi. 
We must use all of the time which is left to us in these next days preparing to meet this attack. Weapons and ammunition must be accumulated and stored. Squads must drill, and a solemn, determined spirit of Christian reverence must be stimulated in all members. Close quote. On the night of April 24th, 64 crosses burned throughout Mississippi. Days before the Freedom Summer volunteers arrived, two white men pulled up in front of the Jackson Kofo office, shot at the building, and drove off. Six days later, the Freedom House in Canton was bombed. And that day, three journalists were mauled in the southwestern part of the state. One attacker declared, This is just a taste of what you northern agitators will get. On June 13th, the first group of agitators arrived at Western College for Women in Oxford, Ohio, for a week of orientation. Many were students at Ivy and top universities, including Harvard, Yale, Oberlin, and Berkeley. They were the sons and daughters of lawyers, doctors, and congressmen, and of teachers, ministers, and social workers. Eventually, over a thousand volunteers would go through the training. In all, 90% of the volunteers were white, 9% black, and 1% Asian. 40% of the volunteers were women. To get in the right frame of mind for Freedom Summer, the brand new activists were advised to read several books, including Black Like Me, The Souls of Black Folk, Killers of the Dream, and Dr. King's memoir of the 1956 Montgomery bus boycott. Among the veterans trying to prepare the volunteers for what lay ahead were Victoria Gray, John Lewis, Marion Barry, Fannie Lou Hamer, Julian Bond, and Stokely Carmichael. Many students were especially impressed with Bob Moses, who was known for his gentle yet earnest way of speaking. Robert Paris Moses grew up in Harlem with his father, who was a janitor, his mother, and two brothers. Moses excelled in school, earning him a scholarship to Hamilton College in upstate New York. He participated in Quaker summer camps in Europe, building houses for the poor. Moses visited Japan to explore Zen Buddhism and was an avid student of pacifism and the philosopher Albert Camus, who is credited with saying, quote, words are more powerful than munitions. After earning a master's degree in mathematical logic from Harvard, Moses returned to Harlem to support his father. The elder Moses had been so overcome with grief at the death of his wife from cancer that he had a nervous breakdown. For three years, Bob taught at the prestigious Horace Mann School in the Bronx. But before that, while tutoring singer Frankie Lyman, famous for the song Why Do Fools Fall in Love, Moses was exposed to the ghettos that were supposed to have been the promised land for blacks who had left the South during the Great Migration. Then, in 1960, when he saw the picture of Joseph McNeil, Franklin McCain, Ezell Blair, Jr., and David Richmond sitting resolutely at the lunch counter of the Greensboro Walgreens, he knew what he wanted to do with his life. On the recommendation of civil rights veteran Bayard Rustin, Moses headed to Atlanta to meet with Ella Baker, another veteran of the movement. At the time, Baker was the executive secretary of SCLC, founded by Dr. King. Baker was also promoting SNCC, her vision for an organization that focused more on empowering the oppressed to take a personal stand rather than relying heavily on charismatic leaders appealed to Moses. Baker sent him to Mississippi, where he met NAACP organizer and entrepreneur Amzie Moore. Moses would later say of Amzie that he was, quote, the only person I met on that trip, giving the student sit-in movement careful attention, aware of all that student energy, and trying to figure out how to use it, end quote. Moses and the others warned the novices about the hostile treatment they would receive from white Mississippi residents. They would be called troublemakers, intruders, and race-mixing trash. The training included role-playing an angry mob, and the volunteers took turns screaming horrible epithets, like the N-word and commie bastard at each other. If there was any doubt that their fellow Americans would actually speak to them that way, it was surely cast out by the hate mail sent to the campus. One letter called them, quote, 
morally rotten outcasts of the white race. And another said that, quote, white Negroes are the rottenest of the race-mixing criminals. This letter threatened a, quote, long hot summer, but the heat will be applied to the race-mixing trash by the decent people who do not believe in racial mongrelization through racial prostitution, end quote. Volunteers learned that the sound of an accelerating car outside might signal that a firebomb had been thrown. If possible, they should sleep at the back of a home and avoid sleeping near windows. Always drive five miles per hour under the speed limit. Don't give out your host's address. And don't go anywhere alone, especially at night. Contrary to what they had been taught as children, in Mississippi, the police were not their friends. They would be arrested. In addition to personal spending money, volunteers should bring $500 bail. SNCC staffers described their experiences at Parchment Farm, where they'd, where they'd been, quote, drenched with water on cold nights, left to swelter in the hot box on blistering afternoons, end quote. Stokely Carmichael had spent time at Parchman, and by now was beginning to question nonviolence, which the volunteers in training got to witness when he got in a heated debate with Reverend James Lawson, the author of SNCC's mission statement on nonviolence. Carmichael would eventually become one of the leaders of the Black Power Movement. Fannie Lou Hamer told volunteers about being arrested for sitting at a whites-only counter. At the jail, guards handed a blackjack, a police weapon similar to a club, to a male inmate with which to beat her. She was forced to lie on the ground as she was beaten from head to toe. That man beat me till he give out, she told them. Volunteers sat in shock, tears in their eyes, hands over their mouths. Don't beat me no more, Hamer cried out in the cell and in the college auditorium. Don't beat me no more. The volunteers would also have to learn how to survive a beating themselves without fighting back, because as one staffer told them, you must understand that nonviolence is essential to our program this summer. Volunteers should fall and curl up because it was easier to survive blows to the legs, thighs, buttocks, and kidney. Blows to the head, neck, and groin were harder to recover from. The SNCs told them, quote, I may be killed and you may be killed. They, the white folk, the police, the county sheriff, the state police, they're all waiting for you. They are ready and they are armed. They take you to jail, strip you, lay you on the floor, and beat you until you're almost dead. End quote. Volunteer Chris Williams from Amherst, Massachusetts wrote, It just scared the crap out of us. He also wrote, June 15, 1964. I turned down a chance to work in the southwest part of the state, the most dangerous area. I talked to a staff member covering that area for about 15 minutes, and he told me about the five Negroes who have been taken into the woods and shot in the last three months. I told him that I couldn't go in there because I was just too scared. I felt so bad I was about to forget about going to Mississippi at all. But I still wanted to go. I just didn't feel like giving up my life. June 17. Dear people at home in the safe, safe north. Mississippi is going to be hell this summer. We are going into the very hard core of segregation and white supremacy. I'd venture to say that every member of the Mississippi staff has been beaten up at least once, and he who has not been shot at is rare. It is impossible for you to imagine what we are going into, as it is for me now, but I'm beginning to see. Love, Christopher. Indeed, volunteers were encouraged to return home if they were too scared to continue, and some did. Though shaken, the remaining volunteers were resolved and inspired. As they would all throughout the summer, they sang through the fear. We shall overcome, wade in the water, O oh, freedom, and this little light of mine. Four days into the training, on Tuesday, June 16th, Corps staffers Michael and Rita Schwerner and James Cheney pulled up to Western College for Women in a blue Ford station wagon. They drove from Meridian, Mississippi, where they had transformed an old dirty office into a freedom house with a library. Cheney was black and a native of Mississippi. The Schwerners were white from New York, 
She was a teacher and he was a social worker. By now, Michael Schwerner, who also went by Mickey, was well known to Klansmen in Mississippi. He was, quote, the communist Jew lover they call goatee. At the training, he met summer volunteer Andrew Goodman. The two discovered that they had a lot in common. Both were Jewish and both were from New York. Goodman was also a student at Queens College, Schwerner's alma mater. Mickey got to know Andy, the demonstrations he'd participated in, and the college papers he'd written, and Mickey was impressed. He invited Andy to work with him in Meridian instead of teaching in Vicksburg as he'd been assigned. Goodman accepted another offer to work with black sharecroppers in Canton, Mississippi, but he was flattered by Schwerner's invitation. Also on June 16th, Klansmen waited outside the Mount Zion Methodist Church in Longdale, Mississippi, as the congregation held a meeting to discuss church business. They were looking for, quote, the Jew boy with the beard, not knowing that he was in Ohio. They beat some of the church members instead, and later they burned the church to the ground. News of the attack made it to Ohio. Feeling responsible, Schwerner returned to Mississippi, determined to build a freedom school where the ashes of Mount Zion smoldered. He invited Andy to join him, and this time he accepted. Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney left Oxford, Ohio at 3 a.m. and arrived in Meridian, Mississippi at 5.30 p.m. The next morning, Father's Day, Fanny Lee Cheney cooked breakfast for her son and his two friends. Andy Goodman sent a postcard to his family. Dear Mom and Dad, I have arrived safely in Meridian, Mississippi. This is a wonderful town, and the weather is fine. I wish you were here. The people in this city are wonderful, and our reception was very good. All my love, Andy. Andy, James, and Mickey departed from the Meridian Community Center, with James behind the wheel. Following SNCC protocol, they had informed staff of where they were going and when they expected to return. The rule was, if a traveler did not return by the expected time, emergency calls would go out on the Wide Area Telephone Service, or WATS. Mickey expected to be back by 4, and told the Meridian staff to start the calls if they weren't back by 4.30. Around 4 o'clock, one of the staffers called the COFO headquarters in Jackson, concerned that she hadn't heard from the men. She was told to wait an hour, as the men may have had car trouble. The next day, COFO issued the following. June 22, 1964. Memorandum regarding the disappearance of three summer project workers in Neshoba County, Mississippi, while investigating the bombing of a Negro church, which was to be the site of a community center this summer. Three workers for the Council of Federated Organizations, COFO, and the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, have been reported missing since late yesterday afternoon during a trip to Neshoba County in Middle Eastern, Mississippi. The three are Michael Schwerner, 24, and Andrew Goodman, 20, both from New York, and James Cheney, 21, of Meridian, Mississippi. Schwerner and Cheney are core workers, and Goodman a summer volunteer. Cheney is Negro. They had gone to Philadelphia, Mississippi, in Neshoba County, to investigate the bombing of Mount Zion Church and the beating of three Negroes there, June 17th. The communications spokesman for the Meridian, Mississippi Corps office said that the three left Meridian at 10 a.m. yesterday with the intention of returning to Meridian before 4 p.m. They have not been heard from since they left Meridian. COFO and SNCC workers have been in touch with all local jails and hospitals, but only the sheriff of Neshoba has said that he knows anything about the group. The sheriff said the group was arrested late yesterday afternoon on a charge of speeding in their car, but were released by 10 p.m. He said that he knows nothing of their whereabouts after their release. John Doerr, a top lawyer of the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, said today that the Justice Department is investigating. Earlier, a department lawyer in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and an FBI agent in Jackson, the state capital, said that they did not feel they had the authority to become involved in the search for the three workers. They said that they were not sure a federal statute had been violated.
fathers of both Goodman and Schwerner, have spoken to Nicholas Katzenbach and Doar of the Justice Department to demand investigation of the case. Summer Project volunteers at the orientation session at Oxford, Ohio, are telephoning and sending telegrams to their senators and congressmen to demand justice and FBI investigation of their disappearance. Schwerner, Project Director at Meridian, is a graduate of the New York School of Social Work. Goodman is a junior at Queens College. Senator Jacob Javits, Republican from New York, has notified summer volunteers from New York who called him today that he is apprised of the situation in Mississippi and is in contact with the Justice Department. The first arrivals to the Freedom Summer Orientation, those who met Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, would canvass Mississippi citizens and help them register to vote. I'll talk more about their work in the next episode. The second group would teach in the Freedom Schools, and they arrived in Ohio just as news of the missing men spread across the country. Psychiatrist Robert Coles sent eight volunteers home, citing panic, quote, near psychosis, or character disorders. Terrified parents called the college and begged their children to leave the program. Parental permission was required for volunteers under the age of 21, and some of them gave it only with reluctance. One Manhattan mother told her son, quote, I don't see how I have any right to stop you, end quote. Then she went in the kitchen and wept as she washed the dishes. Other parents refused. An applicant recalled, quote, My mom starts crying. Then my dad gets on and starts yelling about how he's not paying $2,000, or whatever my tuition was, for me to run off to Mississippi, that I'm there to get an education, and if I have anything else in mind, he'll be glad to stop sending the check. End of discussion. Some discussions took place in writing, and volunteers tried to explain their desire to serve in letters to their families. June 27. Dear Mom and Dad, This letter is hard to write because I would like so much to communicate how I feel, and I don't know if I can. It is very hard to answer to your attitude that if I loved you I wouldn't do this. Hard because the thought is cruel. I can only hope you have the sensitivity to understand that I can both love you very much and desire to go to Mississippi. I have no way of demonstrating my love. It is simply a fact, and that is all I can say. I hope you all accept my decision, even if you do not agree with me. There comes a time when you have to do things which your parents do not agree with. Convictions are worthless in themselves. In fact, if they don't become actions, they are worse than worthless. They become a force of evil in themselves. You can't run away from a broadened awareness. If you try, it follows you in your conscience, or you become a self-deceiving person who has numbed some of his humanness. I think you have to live to the fullest extent to which you have gained awareness, or you are less than the human being that you are capable of being. This doesn't apply just to civil rights or social consciousness, but to all the experiences of life. Love, Bonnie. Parents in Los Angeles formed the Parents Mississippi Emergency Committee. At their July 13th meeting, they shared their children's letters and took up a collection for bail money. They also planned an art auction, the proceeds of which would be sent to COFO. Two dozen of the better-connected parents flew to Washington to meet with senators, the deputy attorney general, and a White House aide. But for most of the parents who didn't or couldn't say no, there was hoping, waiting, watching the news, and writing letters to Washington. July 4, 1964. Dear Mr. Attorney General, our son, Shelton, is among the many young people who are jeopardizing their lives in Mississippi this summer, attempting to perform a service to their country. These young people have taken seriously the inaugural challenge of President Kennedy. They have earnestly asked what they could do for their country. We feel the prestige of the United States has been shaken by the news from Mississippi these past weeks, and as parents spend many sleepless nights knowing the dangers these young people face. With the Civil Rights Bill now signed into law, we as parents feel the federal government has every legal right to send U.S. Marshals and a sufficient military force 
to protect these young people, as all indications are that the people of Mississippi are going to resist the enforcement of the civil rights laws. May we please see some positive action from your office before more blood is spilled in Mississippi. Sincerely yours, H.C. Stromquist. President Johnson had signed the Civil Rights Act two days before Mr. Stromquist's letter. Congress and the President had been spurred, at least in part, by the Meridian Incident. The new law prohibited segregation on the basis of race in schools, employment, and public accommodations. It also protected voting rights and outlawed discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. But it did little to ensure enforcement. And of the 22 Southern Senators, 21 of them Democrats, only Ralph Yarborough of Texas voted in favor of the bill. During debates on the legislation, Senator Strom Thurmond from South Carolina railed, quote, These so-called civil rights proposals, which the President has sent to Capitol Hill for enactment into law, are unconstitutional, unnecessary, unwise, and extend beyond the realm of reason. This is the worst civil rights package ever presented to the Congress and is reminiscent of the Reconstruction proposals and actions of the Radical Republican Congress. As I mentioned earlier, many white communities saw the project as an invasion and an affront. The Stromquists received letters expressing this sentiment, and I'll read one of them. This was a challenging letter to record. At one point, I had to stop, work on other letters, and come back to it. But I did feel it was important to include a full spectrum of Americans' reactions to the project. So, here it is. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Stromquist, What kind of parents are you anyway? You should be ashamed to show your head at the door. You have raised another troublemaker who deserves to get the same fate that the other three troublemakers got. And the sooner all troublemakers are eliminated this way, the better off this country will be. You should see a psychiatrist to straighten out your thinking. People who condone their children's evil pranks of going out of their way to inflict such an evil on the human race as trying to force on them, as your children are doing, deserves the worst, and I hope every one of you gets it. I would vomit in a face if I were forced to touch one. How can you ever eat out of those hands again? If your evil son doesn't get murdered as he deserves, I hope he brings you a wife and a house full of baboons. It was the Almighty God who first segregated the Negro in the first place. Are you so sick in the head that you cannot see that integration with one of these is the biggest evil of all? And not being satisfied to sin yourself, must you try to force others to sin too, by raising brats to go out and force on the human race? Sure, I believe in evolution, but the human race evolved from porpoises, the from apes. And I also believe in living and let living. May you and yours burn in hell forever for the evil crimes you are perpetrating on the human race. If you like the so much, why don't you invite them to your town and take them off our hands? We will be glad to trade you all of them for your worst white hoodlums, jailbirds, prostitutes, or what have you. According to this author, the missing three deserved their fate, which was still unknown to most of the country. Other Mississippians dismissed the disappearance as a communist hoax. Why else would Andrew Goodman have been filmed by news cameras at the training in Ohio before he supposedly disappeared? Senator James Eastland from Mississippi told the president that it was a publicity stunt. He assured Johnson that there were, quote, no white organizations in that area of Mississippi. Who could possibly harm them? End quote. On the same day as this conversation, FBI agents were in Neshoba County interviewing Deputy Sheriff Cecil Price and trying to interview local residents but meeting stone walls. At about 3.30 in the afternoon, radio and TV shows were interrupted with an announcement. The burnt remains of the blue station wagon 
were hauled out of the Bogue Chito Swamp. J. Edgar Hoover told the president, quote, whether there are any bodies in the car, we won't know until we can get into the car ourselves, end quote. But this news did little to dampen the hoax rumors. Quote, Kofo must have burned their own car to make the hoax look convincing. They're probably far out of the country laughing, end quote. But Mississippi's response to the news was largely anger and resentment. Quote, they had no business down here. This wouldn't have happened if they had stayed home where they belong. How long do you think we'd last in Harlem? End quote. According to the mayor of Greenwood, there was no need for the intervention. Black people in his town were, quote, very satisfied. We give them everything, he said. We're building a new swimming pool. We work very close with the <laughs> Civic League, end quote. To be fair, while more violent in Mississippi, racism was not confined to the Magnolia State or to the South. The Harris Poll on Race was taken the summer of 63, 10 weeks before Dr. King's famous speech from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. The majority of whites surveyed admitted disliking, distrusting, or maintaining distance from blacks. Quote, we don't hate, we just don't want them near us. That's why we moved from Chicago, said one woman from San Diego. A Pennsylvania woman said, quote, I don't like to touch them. It makes me squeamish, end quote. Almost 70% said that African Americans had looser morals, and 90% said they would never let their daughter marry a black man. A Nevada man said, quote, Negroes are oversexed. They're wild, end quote. In addition, reporters from Look Magazine and the Saturday Evening Post, who went to the Freedom Project training in Ohio for a story, focused on the white volunteers, especially the women, ignoring the SNCC workers. The front-page headlines on papers from Washington to Los Angeles proved Bob Moses' expectations right. The country cared more about Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner than the black people who died in Mississippi on a regular basis. As Iowa volunteer Mike Kenny wrote to his parents, Yesterday, while the Mississippi River was being dragged, looking for the three missing civil rights workers, two bodies of Negroes were found, one cut in half and one without a head. Mississippi is the only state where you can drag a river any time and find bodies you were not expecting. Negroes disappear down here every week and are never heard about. Things really are much better for rabbits here. There is a closed season on rabbits when they may not be killed. Negroes are killed all year round, so are rabbits. The difference is that arrests are made for killing rabbits out of season. This is supposed to be America in 1964. By the time teacher Linda Davis arrived in Mississippi on June 28th, there were 450 volunteers across the state. The voting registration canvassers had already written down. She wrote a postcard to her parents while she was in Tennessee, a few miles from the border. Quote, We're in the Memphis bus station right now, waiting for a bus to Ruleville. When we arrived this morning, the police were here, five emergency squad cars, end quote. Once in Ruleville, they were greeted by the sheriff and the German shepherd in the back of his pickup truck. At the train station in Jackson, one student was kicked over from behind. Despite the warnings and role-playing at the Oxford training, volunteer Fred Wynn did not feel prepared for the, quote, hate people gave me, that white people gave me on the street, the glares, the words, the finger, the absolute hate that you felt while walking down the street, end quote. Police arrested the volunteers for speeding, reckless driving, and reckless walking. Len Edwards, a University of Chicago student, reported that FBI agents followed him everywhere. His car was later firebombed. But Black Mississippi welcomed the volunteers warmly. Fannie Lou Hamer met the volunteers who had arrived at the Ruleville station and took them to her house for lunch. Mrs. Bernice White from Indianola said, quote, We were glad to see them, because here no white educated people talked to us. And here were young people from big cities and places and we found out that they were just like anyone else. They were friendly, 
and were happy to have them around. We found out that they would eat the same thing that we would eat, because whatever we were eating, if they came in, they ate right along with us. End quote. When Mr. Williams initially met the volunteer who would be staying with his family, he was so overcome with emotion that he could not speak. He later said, quote, It's a fine Christian thing, a fine thing that you all have come here. Many volunteers wrote home about their excellent hosts. Chula, July 6th. Greetings, Ed, from the Delta. My views on rural America are well known. Yet here I am on a farm for the first time in my life and enjoying it. The Negroes here are independent farmers and live in the small wooden houses with no running water and no sanitation facilities. But they generally have a TV set, a freezer, a truck, and a tractor. Luxury that few sharecroppers or casual workers in Mississippi can hope to attain. In the two-bedroom house in which I live, we have five small girls, a baby, three teenage girls, the mother and father, one 11-year-old boy, and a grandmother, plus the two of us as volunteers. The five children sleep in pinwheel fashion on one bed. Cephas, the other volunteer, a Negro, and I share a room all to ourselves. The house is kept immaculately by the three girls. Many northern women could take lessons from them. The food is unbelievable. The proverbial farmhand's meal with biscuits, eggs, rice, cornbread, sausage for breakfast, and so much dinner that no three people could eat it. Best, Mike. We'll hear from Cephas in the next episode. The volunteers observed the respect with which the black women spoke to each other, addressing each other as Mrs. and Miss. They learned where the Judas lived, about superstitions and folk remedies, and surviving on $3 a day. And they witnessed the power of music and faith in God. Reactions varied. I enjoy going to the Sunday church services. The singing comes from the heart, but unfortunately so do the sermons. They approach the ridiculous to my New York-bred mind. But the basic themes are good and would be the same you might hear in any Episcopal church. Today is my day to help in the kitchen to make some dough. If I don't learn anything else this summer, I'll have left the South knowing how to make a pie crust. Love, Rusty. Alan Tideman wrote, The women from the church every day would bring food for all the teachers. I used to look forward to it so much. They had fried chicken and deviled eggs and potato salad. They would spread it out on the table. It was so touching to be cared for that way. I felt like I belonged. I felt like they liked me and wanted me to be there. Not only were the Northerners impressed by the welcome, black Mississippi residents were pleasantly surprised by how well the volunteers adjusted to their new environment. They ate their fill of fried chicken, collard greens, and chitlins. They learned how to take evening showers with buckets of cold water and rise in the morning to the sound of roosters. Greenwood author Andisha Ida May Holland recalled, quote, And the outhouse we had to use? I was really surprised because I said, Well, I know this white girl ain't going to use the outhouse like everybody else. And the girl would use the outhouse like she was born to it, and that made us all gang around them. The hosts received $4 per volunteer, but the hospitality came at a price. Aware of the threats, Mr. and Mrs. Oscar Giles of Indianola put thick wire screens over the windows of their home and adjoining grocery store so that if someone threw a bomb, it would bounce off the screen. The local news reported that someone had been offered $400 to bomb all the houses where volunteers were staying. One hostess in Canton slept with a hatchet under her pillow. Another man was fired from his job for hosting two volunteers. And as heartened and warmed as the volunteers were by the black community's generosity, they were also appalled by the poverty in which many of them lived. Some were enraged. Just down the gravel road and around the corner from their hosts' homes were feeble shacks with raw sewage in the back. There are almost no sidewalks in the Negro neighborhoods. 
The red dirt clay is hard, and the sun won't quit. The poverty and sorrow of the neighborhoods doesn't leave you. I've been to hundreds of houses I could kick down with my feet and a small hammer. And I've seen the hands of these people, swollen and bruised, hard and calloused from years of work, at practically no pay, and whatever the pay was, it was always half what a white man would get for the same job. And I realized very suddenly and forcefully that these people are my people, and their sorrow is mine also. And since we are of this country, our grief is collective, whether the rest of the country admits it or not. Another volunteer wrote, There are people here without food and clothing. Kids that eat a bit of bread for breakfast, chicken necks for dinner. Kids that don't have clothes to go to school in. Old, old people and young people chop cotton from sunup till sundown for $3 a day. Schools for black Mississippians were similarly deprived. In episode one of my series on the Great Migration, I talked about the disparities between black and white schools in the South. In the aftermath of the Civil War, thousands of black children were educated in freedmen schools, funded mostly by their local communities and northern missionaries. Many encouraging gains were made during Reconstruction, which white Mississippians called the, the tragic era. But almost 100 years later, the state was spending four times as much on the education of white children as black in separate but unequal schools. On May 17, 1954, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation of public schools on the basis of race was unconstitutional. But in Mississippi, state legislators declared that Brown v. Board of Education was invalid, unconstitutional, and not of lawful effect by a vote of 136 to 0. Compared to 11 years on average for white students, the average black student in Mississippi attended school for six years. Black students could only attend school for a few months of, at a time because they had to work to help support their families. Fannie Lou Hamer, who left school after sixth grade, told of being 44 years old the first time she learned of her constitutional right to vote. A 12-year-old African-American boy's view of Mississippi education was printed in the August 20 edition of the Springfield Union newspaper in Massachusetts. We don't have good schools in Canton. We don't have desks or lunches. The books are not good. The pages are out of them. We don't have any lockers to put our things in. We don't have many erasers or crayons. The white and colored people can't worship together. I hope someday we will be free. One of the goals of the Freedom Project was to cultivate leaders among Mississippi residents and to teach them their rights and responsibilities as American citizens. This education included the three R's, the Mississippi and U.S. Constitutions, the philosophy of the civil rights movements, and black history. According to black Mississippi residents, Daisy Harris Wade, quote, the purpose of the Freedom School was to introduce us to the fact that Booker T. Washington wasn't the only black man that did something. That's all we studied. George Washington Carver and Booker T. Washington. End quote. Two of Wade's sons attended a Freedom School, and she was active in the movement herself and hosted volunteers for the summer. Despite the passage of Mississippi Bill 1969, which outlawed the Freedom Schools, they opened the first week in July. As she waited, Linda Davis wrote to her family, We open school tomorrow. We're not really sure of how many people will come, but many have come to help as we've cleaned the place up. In the morning, women and their young children. In the afternoon, students. And in the evening, any more adults who wish to come. I will be teaching literacy, among other things. Everything is still fine. We're all hoping. Ruleville's two schools saw 50 students during Freedom Summer. One of the older students in Ruleville was Ruby Davis, a grandmother. Later in the summer, she wrote, August 3, 1964. Dear Mrs. Werner, 
I have been very busy going to classes, church conversations, and the Freedom Democratic Party meetings. We are learning some about so many things. The children are learning to type. We have a nice library. Books came in from so many places. All kinds of books. I wish I didn't have to work right now so I could read and read. The children are going to Ruleville School in the morning and to our community center school in the building the students helped set up. Our school will be closed here for cotton picking in September and October. We'll open again in November. The big planters say, in that way, the colored people on their plantations will be able to pick cotton and the children can pay him what they owe. That is, if it doesn't rain too much. We will begin quilting on your quilt this week also. The children will answer their scout girl letters. We received all the nice boxes and thank you so very much. Sincerely yours, Ruby Davis. Mrs. Davis's husband and other men in the community had lost their jobs when they tried to register to vote. With the help of Mrs. Evelyn Werner, Mrs. Davis and other Ruleville women sold quilts and aprons to support their families. I'll talk more about the Freedom Summer voter registration campaign in the next episode. Fifty students also attended the school in Meridian, the town from which Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman had disappeared. And almost 700 studied in Hattiesburg's five schools. By the end of the summer, over 3,000 Mississippians had been educated in over 40 schools. The students, who ranged in age from eight to adult, also had the opportunity to study science, literature, and art. The schools were a revelation for student and teacher alike. The introduction to the SNCC history text said, quote, As you read, ask, why haven't I learned about Cherokee Bill, Nat Turner, Peter Salem, Sojourner Truth, and the many others of us in this book? Think about how you should know about many of us in this book who fought against being slaves and fought for freedom in the country and weren't, quote, happy and satisfied. Think about freedom. Freedom is fought for by the people who question and challenge slavery. Ask as you read, am I free? If I'm not free, who do I question and challenge? How do I question and challenge? End quote. Negroes in American History, a freedom primer, contained a section on Toussaint Louverture, leader of the Haitian Revolution. Pennsylvania resident Pamela Allen had the privilege of introducing him to her students. In her notes, she wrote, I told them that the slaves revolted. French Revolution, government abolished slavery. English decided to invade and take over the island. I watched faces all around me. They knew what was coming. They knew the story of their people well. Negroes, former slaves, could not defeat England. And then I told them, that the people of Haiti succeeded in keeping the English out. I watched a smile spread slowly over a girl's face, and I saw girls tense and look at me intently. Then I told them that Napoleon came to power, reinstated slavery, sent expedition to Haiti. They looked at me and their faces began to fall. But they waited, hoping against hope, that I would say that he did not succeed. Then I told them that the French generals tricked the Haitian leader, Toussaint, to come aboard their ship. They then captured him and sent him to France. They knew then that there was no hope. They waited for me to spell out the defeat. Former slaves without a leader. Negroes could not defeat the great powers of the world. I told them that Haiti did keep its independence and was finally recognized as a republic. They just smiled at each other. To think that such a little thing could mean so much. Then they discussed why a revolution could not have occurred in America. Students were downright incredulous at these stories. I think you're lying, one student accused his teacher when he heard about the majestic African civilizations. Then he burst into tears. The teacher cried too. Not only did the students learn about black achievement in history, many got their first look at Ebony Magazine. It featured successful and accomplished blacks of the day, like Aretha Franklin and Sidney Poitier. Teachers were advised not to merely stick to the script, 
but encouraged discussion and questioning. The Freedom Schools presented the first opportunity that many black Mississippians had ever had to express themselves politically or creatively in a school setting. The teacher at the Clarksdale School sparked a discussion by reading to her class from James Baldwin's Talk to the Teachers. Now, if I were a teacher in this school or any Negro school, and I was dealing with Negro children who were in my care only a few hours of every day and would then return to their homes and to the streets, I would make them know that those streets, those houses, those dangers, those agonies by which they are surrounded are criminal. I would try to make each child know that these things are a result of a criminal conspiracy to destroy him. After that, students opened up about Mississippi, about the police, and a recent shooting. As the summer wore on, the students awakened. The Moss Point Freedom School dramatized the Dred Scott decision. Students debated the merits of nonviolence and wrote essays about civil rights in their school newsletters, which had names like the Ruleville Freedom Fighter, the Shaw Freedom Flame, and the Meridian Freedom Star. They expressed themselves in poems like this one written by 12-year-old Ida Ruth Griffin. I am Mississippi fed, I am Mississippi bred, nothing but a poor black boy, I am a Mississippi slave. I shall be buried in a Mississippi grave, nothing but a poor dead boy. A heated discussion ensued. We're not black slaves, one student protested. We certainly are. Can your father vote? Can he eat where he wants to? Another poet was 16-year-old student and teacher Joyce Brown. Her piece was called The House of Liberty. I came not for fortune, nor for fame. I seek not to add glory to an unknown name. I did not come under the shadow of night. I came by day to fight for what's right. I shan't let fear, my monstrous foe, conquer my soul with threat and woe. Here I have come and here I shall stay, and no amount of fear my determination can sway. I asked for your churches and you turned me down but I'll do my work if I have to do it on the ground. You will not speak for fear of being heard, so you crawl in your shell and say do not disturb. You think because you've turned me away, you've protected yourself for another day. But tomorrow surely must come, and your enemy will still be there with the rising sun. He'll be there tomorrow as all tomorrows in the past, and he'll follow you into the future if you let him pass. You've turned me down to humor him. Ah, your fate is sad and grim. For even though your help I ask, even without it, I'll finish my task. In a bombed house, I have to teach my school because I believe all men should live by the golden rule. To a bombed house, your children must come because of your fear of a bomb. And because you've let your fear conquer your soul, in this bombed house, these minds I must try to mold. I must try to teach them to stand tall and be a man. When you, their parents, have cowered down and refused to take a stand. Brown wrote this poem after the bombing of the Macomb Freedom School. At one point, bombings were happening in Macomb almost every day, which earned the town the nickname Bomb Capital of the World. A few lines from an incident report read, June 18th, Wilbert Lewis, 46, of Macomb, a mechanic, abducted at gunpoint and whipped with a leather strap in the Holmesville area. June 22nd, Freddie Bates, home, 928 Summit Street, bombed. June 22nd, Curtis Bryant, home on Venable Street Extension, bombed. June 22nd, Corinne Andres, home, 528 Warren Street, bombed. July 8th, Kofo Headquarters, 702 Wall Street, bombed. Dennis Sweeney and Curtis Hayes slightly injured. And so on. Under these conditions, the community had been afraid to provide another site for the school, 
so the students and teachers met on the charred ground where the building once stood. Brown's poem inspired the adults and emboldened them to donate church buildings, food, and money to the movement, and to register to vote. The summer project also hosted 13 community freedom centers where preschoolers, the elderly, and mothers with children would study literacy, art, music, dance, recreation, daycare, and health. The following report describes the freedom centers. About 800 children, teenagers, and adults are now participating in the community center program in Mississippi. These Negro Mississippians, who have been deprived of all cultural benefits and have been subject to one of the most inferior school systems in the country, are now flocking to 13 fledgling community centers in makeshift buildings. While the Freedom Schools and the community centers thrived, the voter registration effort struggled. For SNCC, the ballot box was the main goal. But as I'll talk about next time, the summer project faced incredible challenges to getting black voters registered. I'll also devote more time to the women of the movement and talk about the fate of Mickey Schwerner, James Cheney, and Andy Goodman. Many of the letters in this episode were read with permission from the Wisconsin Historical Society. Another great source was the book Letters from Mississippi, compiled by Elizabeth Sutherland Martinez. Show notes are at AmericanEpistles.com, and check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Himalaya. The music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>